when you're interacting with any given situation, it's really useful to sort of just think as a general scientist, question yourself, question the information you have in front of you, question your thoughts. Um, often when we're coming up with hypotheses, we might say, okay, my hypothesis is that, you know, when I drop this ball, it'll fall to the ground, right? But that's not, that's kind of not where it ends. We also have to think of alternative hypotheses. We have to think about, well, what is the situation that I could be wrong? Um, and how many ways can I be wrong? Hi, and welcome to Building Perspective with Matt Riley and Molly Elfman. We're here to bring value to you and your team by exploring all things sales and marketing related. All from different perspectives. And today, our focus discussion of the week is the science of bias. And we have a very special guest with us. We have Lindsay Tepfer with us. And uh, Lindsay has more... Uh, more titles, more recognition, more uh, more smarts than I could ever um, imagine. And uh, Molly, why don't you actually kind of read off Lindsay's bio because I, I can't even handle it. Yeah. Stupid. So when I when Lindsay and I were talking earlier, I said I'm not smart enough to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Lindsay is a research associate in the neuroeconomics lab at Temple University. She also happens to be married to someone on the group two team who um we love and uh you two are family and uh you know when everything started happening i wanted to talk to you because as i told you i am one of your biggest fans that you didn't know you have <laughs> so welcome thank you thanks guys for having me so Absolutely. um you know i know for me i am taking a moment to try to learn a little bit and you are obviously someone I can learn a lot from and that we all can learn a lot from. Um, tell us a little bit just about, you know, neuroeconomics in general, what mm -hmm. you study, um, what your passion is, just to kind of frame the context of our conversation. Sure. Yeah. So currently as a research associate, um, I work on lots of questions pertaining to uh, decision making. And my interest in particular uh, happens to be around social decision making. So um, social uh, decision making uh, considers our inner group uh, interactions. It considers the functions that uh, we use when we're thinking about the minds of other people, thinking about the actions of other people. And so it's the uh, conjunction of those two worlds that I'm really interested in, um, because um, if you've already known this, uh, our decisions are not the same when we're by ourselves versus when we're in front of other people. And so some of the work that we do um, will try to understand more um, how does the brain process uh, social stimuli uh, when it's making decisions um, and how um, differences between different groups of people uh, you know, for example, that could be people with depression. Um, that's a, 
a study that I've worked on very recently. Um, it could be when we're thinking about social norms. So it's a really, really broad space um, that we work on. And a lot of the uh, models that we work with are economic models. So that's where the uh, neuroecon uh, element comes into play. And uh, economics is very helpful because it helps us use models and tools uh, for the, the decision-making aspect. So how do people decide between two options? Um, in these given scenarios, what will people tend to do, and so on. So it's a really big space that we can go in a lot of different directions, which is uh, clearly very exciting because it gives you a lot of different avenues to explore. So for me, um, my biggest interest is that uh, theme that I hinted to a little bit is um, thinking about the minds of other people. So that's uh, a term called theory of mind, um, it's also referred to as mentalizing. So there are uh, some of the social interactions that we do, we're often thinking about other people's minds. Um, we have a network of brain regions that tends to be associated with this function. And um, it's this function that we can kind of understand, well, what happens when people aren't considering the minds of other people? And of course, I'm sure you guys can think of a lot of situations where uh, people might not be thinking about other people's minds. So you were ta you talked, you said for a second something about um, how the brain processes social stimuli. And mm -hmm. um, can you explain that a little bit more? Can you talk a little Absolutely. bit more just like about the brain and, and what that means to people who are not studying neuroeconomics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so when we say social stimuli, it's actually, yeah, I'm glad you asked because it it's really a loaded term. So that could be facial stimuli. So uh, a lot of the time when we're saying stimuli, I'm, I'm sort of referring to experiments inside of the lab. So we'll bring the participants in. Um, they'll usually be sitting down in front of a computer. Um, we've designed some sort of experimental paradigm where we're trying to isolate a very specific hypothesis. Um, so for example, one hypothesis can be um, if people are looking at certain shapes moving, will they see some kind of social meaning of that, right? Even if it's just shapes. Um, so shapes can be, interacting shapes can be a stimuli that could be like uh, what we consider a mentalizing stimuli. It could be different kinds of faces. So you can have different uh, genders, you can have different races. You can also have people interacting live in the scanner. That's something called, in, in the fMRI scanner. So that's something called hyperscanning, where two people are literally in fMRI scanners and we're watching their brain activity at the same time while they're communicating. So um, the social stimuli uh, can really refer to any one of those sort of social interactions or socially meaningful information. So where does bias fit in to that conversation? Is that, um, is that something that everyone is pre, you know, everyone has bias? Is that something that's learned? I mean, what, what does that look like from an academic standpoint? I think that bias is, uh, a very challenging topic because you're talking about this in-group, out-group dynamic. And so it's very relative to the point of which group that you might be in. So bias can be in a given situation, the likelihood for, say in the brain, for example, 
um, a certain brain region to activate more towards faces that are within your group. So say if you are um, a white person looking at a white face, that would be an in-group uh, stimuli. And now imagine that you saw, you, you saw the brain activity from that interaction and compared it directly to, say, a white person looking at a black face. That would be an example of an out-group interaction. So by categorizing race, you can have an in and out-group. But in and out-group, again, uh, this is where it can get challenging and it can get a little bit hairy, doesn't exclusively refer to race. We obviously have a lot of different groups that we belong to. We, you know, you belong to group two, I belong to Temple University. And so right then and there, we can have an in-group, out-group bias as, you know, I am an academic and you are a marketer. And so we can start thinking and uh, detangling the things that we say from each other differently. Um, but to the question is, is everybody kind of born biased? Um, everybody, the, the neural function of categorization is, is uh, fundamental. It is useful um, to categorize the world so that we can navigate it easily. If we weren't categorizing, um, the world would be pretty overwhelming. Um, but I think the problem is when we're not realizing our categorizations and how they might be um, contributing to harm. So for example, if you're constantly categorizing certain races of people, certain genders of people um, along stereotypes. So that's kind of where the, the conversation of bias and kind of in-group, out-group can you know, take a different flavor depending on uh, the context that you're using it in. I think that like what you just said is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because I think that um, that part of the conversation is, I know for me, I want to learn and grow. And I think just knowing that, um, that, that we categorize people and things and we create these groups and that might be contributing to harm and, and being aware of it. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I like the, I have so many different questions based on that based on that statement, and who knows if any of them make it to air, and if this part even makes it to air, that's okay. But so, how like from a from an understanding of the brain of your own brain and how you make decisions, if I if I innately have a bias um, at my core from an in out group, how do I say, how do I recognize that A, that is a fact that that can happen, or I do have that, that innate bias and, and, and B like, how do I consciously address that mm -hmm. and, and an attempt not to. You really mm -hmm. went for the hard one. <laughs> I, yeah. so, I mean, Lindsay, I mean, come on, you can, you got this in the bag, right? That's the all the answers <laughs> to the world, please. Oh yeah. Right um, so I think that in, in some ways, thinking about the brain is useful. Um, it is nice to know that, okay, that, that uh, it is useful for the brain, right, to categorize. It helps us navigate the world. It helps us know what's dangerous. It helps us know what's safe. It helps us know every time we have an interaction with someone that, hey, every time I talk to this person, they don't seem to be very friendly or they don't really seem to like me. So then, all right, from here on out, I won't do that, 
Right. So I think that can be very useful. But I, I think in some ways, it's, it's best to consider um, it in independently of the brain too. So when you're interacting with any given situation, it's really useful to sort of just think as a general scientist, question yourself, question the information you have in front of you, question your thoughts. Um, often when we're coming up with hypotheses, we might say, okay, my hypothesis is that, you know, when I drop this ball, it'll fall to the ground, right? But that's not, that's kind of not where it ends. We also have to think of alternative hypotheses. We have to think about, well, what is the situation that I could be wrong? Um, and how many ways can I be wrong? So when you're interacting with different people, or say you're finding yourself categorizing, or you find yourself just uh, engaging with some sort of truth or, or semblance of a truth, it's worth just asking yourself, why do I think this? And what would be a way that I could disprove myself? And to be honest, Matt, that is an extremely difficult thing without even being aware of basic cognitive fallacies. So um, I think that one way that has helped me because being a scientist does not mean that you're some objective robotic creature. Science is human, it is a human endeavor, and scientists very often bring in their own biases into their work. And so it drives our hypotheses, it drives how we ask questions. So just for me, knowing about some of the popular cognitive biases, so for example, uh, one huge one, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this before, um, confirmation bias, um, that is, when you have a specific view of the world and every piece of information that new piece of information that you encounter it either agrees with or disagrees with something you already believe and so there's this tendency to discredit something that disagrees with what you believe so it's, even, it can be like the echo chamber of social media yes right? yes it can be um oh that person agrees with me um it must be right because that's what i believe anyway so yeah. It's, it's just knowing that. So for me, when I'm interacting with something online, and of course, we've all gotten much better at this just by being online. But when I see a post online, and it seems to agree with what I'm saying, I usually try to click on it and be like, is this the truth? And where else can I find maybe something that disagrees with it? And how many other things can I see that agrees with it? And um, is there some sort of point where there's a discrepancy? Is there sort of a gap? And that's really what we're trained to do as scientists. We're trained to evaluate information and find gaps of information that, that kind of doesn't exist. And that's where we pursue kind of evidence in that space. But I think people in general can think that way. And I think that would be really helpful. One of my favorite cognitive biases, I just, I just think it's a very funny one. Um, so it's hilarious to me when I catch myself doing it, it is the sunk cost bias. Are you, you mm. two familiar with that one? I'm not. Uh, I love it. Yeah, you do? Yep. Okay. So that one is one of my, I don't know why, I just think it's very funny. It's the, um, for those who don't know, um, it's the bias of when you spend a lot of time, say, nurturing a relationship, sitting in a restaurant, waiting for uh, a waiter to bring your food, and it goes on for so long and you've gotten nothing in return. So that's kind of one really good example of just knowing of a bias. 
uh, can help you make better decisions. So if you're sitting there in line uh, or waiting on the phone because you're trying to call the bank and it's been an hour, you can kind of think, well, am I wasting more time and yielding no benefit to myself by falling into the sunk cost bias? Um, and if that's the case, should I just hang up? So little things like that, I think, can be very powerful. Just questioning your own thinking constantly. Yeah, uh, yeah the only tie-in I'm going to use to our normal conversations in this entire thing is, <laughs> is that I use the I use the sunk cost example all the time when I'm talking to our builder partners. A perfect example would be, hey, I've been using this this CRM or lack thereof for four years, five years. We spent. $200,000 to get it in. But the reality is, is no one uses it. Uh, it's like, well, great. Well, why don't we get a new one? Well, we spent so much money on it. We can't yes. switch. That is a sunk cost. It doesn't matter what you spent, how much emotional time you have on it, how much actual money you spent on it. It's a sunk cost. It's gone. You've already spent that money or that time regardless. So you can either continue on in the, 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 the rut that you're in, or you can cut cut line and and move a different direction. Uh, Matt, you, you happen to speak to an issue really close to my heart. One of my <laughs> roles that uh, I had in the time that I spent in between academia. So I was in marketing, I was a digital marketing analyst, and one of my biggest roles was CRM. And that was a challenge that we dealt with every day because I had spent thousands of dollars for yes, a device, a p platform that nobody used. So uh, not to derail here, but that was a perfect example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good. No, that that's, I love that. And I, I love, I did had no idea that you did marketing an analyst. I think that's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, so yeah. Okay. So continue. You hit confirmation bias, mm -hmm. sunk cost bias. What are some other examples? Some other example. So uh, here's where there's a really nice chart. Um, I think if you just uh, do a search uh, of cognitive biases or, or I think you can search chart of cognitive biases, there are some 100 something and that they've kind of named. Um, and so I, of course, of course, I don't know all of them, but there are, there are quite a few really useful ones to know. There's the negativity bias where um, people who see any kind of uh, negative information will kind of cling on to that information um, and uh, then think that, you know, kind of use that as a marker for all things from there. So for example, if they see a review on a TV that they're trying to buy and it's, it's very negative, well, well, then that must be, this whole TV must suck, right? And so hmm. that's something you can think about, I guess, in terms of, um, framing. So um, a framing effect is using language to frame something in a particular way. Um, and if certain um, information is framed very negatively, um, language is very powerful. So, um, you know, a lot of what we understand about the world is through language. And so when you're using things like negative language towards certain topics, towards certain um, groups of people, towards certain actions, you can really paint that given thing um, with a certain kind of emotional connotation. Um, another bias could be um, the anchoring bias where you get a piece of information that says, say, um, thinking of an example, um, universities are, uh, 
increasing their tuition prices to $10,000, you know, every year, right? And then so you see um, one of the universities you might be interested in enrolling some courses at increase their prices, but only $1,000 for that year. Well, because you got that initial bit of information, now, relatively speaking, you think, well, $1,000 must not be bad. That's a good example of an anchoring. Well, you've, they, you've set an anchor point that now made it so that it was much more convincing for you to think that that $1,000 was suddenly so much cheaper. So there's little tiny things like that. You know, In that moment, maybe you can ask yourself, why do I think that this is so much cheaper? Well, why don't I look at at least a good sample of prices to get a better sense of the world. So it's it's constantly trying to get more information and not relying on one or two things that you agree with or something that's based off of only one resource. It's trying to get a better snapshot of the world to try uh, to eliminate uh, some of the biases or some of the um, maybe logical fallacies that, that are very easy to fall into. Uh, and so, as you said, it's there's a chart. I quickly googled a chart as you were talking, um, and and one of the things that I saw that I was like, I literally think I had that light bulb moment. Is a it's listed on this chart here, a blind spot bias, hmm. and it's a viewing oneself as less biased than others. Ah, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one in particular, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, obviously. So, like that one, I was just like. Woo. Yeah. Let that, sink, let that one sink in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people, um, including myself, are having, you know, a moment of that kind of self-reflection. Lindsay, you were just saying, you said something earlier that I circled like 50 times. When you think like a scientist, you question yourself. And to me, that is like, yeah, let's take a minute and question ourselves. And I, I think, you know, you do that regularly in your day-to-day -day interactions and it mm -hmm. sounds exhausting and it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it and is. you know what? It, it should be a lot of work. And I think, um, you know, I know people want to put in that work. Um, well, I hope that people want to put in that work. I know I want to put in that work. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about empathy because empathy and bias, I feel like they like come up in the same conversations are yeah. they linked how are they linked what does that yeah. look like i think that that's such an interesting question um it is a really controversial point in research now so actually on thursday um i will be discussing with my uh colleagues uh, a recent um paper submission so um just really quickly for those who are not familiar um, the publication, the peer review system in science is, you, you know, you, you do an experiment. Um, there's new practices called open science practices where you uh, are actually documenting your hypotheses before you even start experimenting. So we are writing down now for the most part, not, not everybody, but uh, more of the um, forward thinking laboratories are writing down what we think is going to happen with our experiment and kind of uh, it's called pre-registering it and than doing the experiment so that we're not even biasing our own science. So, which is, of course, like I said, it's, it's an absolute thing, we're humans. So we're discussing a paper that was submitted um, that is undergoing the peer review process where other scientists within the field will evaluate your work, critique your work, find the problems in your work, um, 
and write it out to you and say, hey, these are the things that uh, you need to address before we can even you know, consider allowing this to be published. Or there's also the, the chance of us saying, we, we can't allow this you know, to be published. So the paper that we're gonna be discussing on Thursday is an empathy paper. And it is something that brings up a lot of debate. Um, I don't have any work at this time that uh, even looks at empathy. Um, I started down that road and of course, right away, as soon as you bring up empathy, the question is, well, how do you measure it? What is empathy? And there are two people that I absolutely recommend, especially the first person who I'll recommend is Jamil Zaki. And Jamil Zaki is at Stanford. He's a social psychologist and he very recently wrote a book called The War for Kindness. And he has been researching empathy um, and uh, I've seen him talk once, um, super, super great speaker, really um, someone who is committed to uh, science communication. Um, and he's talked about his battles in being a scientist and trying to pursue empathy um, because there's also the other side of things, uh, Paul Bloom at Yale, who kinds of uh, is on the other side of the camp that promotes the idea that people are inherently selfish. So unfortunately, Molly, I'm very sorry that I have to be this way, but I actually don't really know the answer here because it's it's a lot it's debated. You're, and one thing you're such I, a scientist that you like want to weigh both sides. You want to like evaluate <laughs> it. It sounds like like that gray area. You know, you know, you yeah, <laughs> it's true though. And you know, one of the things that I hope to um, pursue more in my PhD work is the mentalizing aspect of it. Because yes, I think that. I, I'm curious to know if people who have different sort of empathy scores, for example, and even that, it, that's a little bit tough because what does it mean when somebody's filling out a survey of, on how empathetic they are, right? You know, are they going to be inflating those numbers? Um, are they, is, are those scores always constant in every situation? Um, are they only empathetic in group versus out group? I mean, the, lots of questions, but I really hope to understand um, in the process of mentalizing. So when you're thinking about the minds of other people, how does empathy play a role there? Is it the same thing? Is empathy thinking about the minds of other people? Is um, that just a, a side effect of that as well? Like, so if you're, if, you know, you're thinking about the minds of other people, depending on how deeply you think about it is depending on how empathetic you are. So those are really fascinating questions. I think they're so important to understand. Um, and I, I think that's a really good example of things that people actively uh, sort of debate and have pretty vigorous discussion about. Yeah, it sounds like it's a, a great place to start, you know, questioning empathy in general and questioning what that looks like. Um, I, I always thought that you could that your brain reacts in a certain way like that that you um that you could actually like your brain responds when you're more empathetic in one situation than to another mm -hmm. um is that not right so i don't know that it's not right it's it's sort of like in neuroimaging for example what we do is we do a lot of comparisons so uh i alluded a little bit earlier about a project that i worked on where i was comparing people with a major depressive disorder with people with a family history of uh, major depressive disorder and what we do is we look at their brains while they're engaging in very specific tasks 
So it's going to be task dependent. And then what we do is we compare the sort of what uh, some people kind of refer to um, as that activation, or you might have heard people say, oh, when the brain lights up and it's not lighting up, it's just how it's referred to as activation. Um, but so we'll compare that and see, well, what is the difference in activity between people say with family history of depression and with depression? And that kind of residual difference might be in one particular brain region. And then the next tough part is the inference. So based on this difference, what does this mean? And that's actually a really hard, hard problem a lot of the time. Um, some people will research a particular question and come out with one in, uh, interpretation. And some people might have a completely different interpretation. So it's not so much that it's wrong. It's more so that um, it would depend on kind of the, the context of what people were doing. So right away, my question would be, well, what, what, what were they doing in that kind of like brain scan, right? Were they looking at their own faces? Were they looking at people that they worked with? Were they looking, because you can also get really granular. You could do like um, Temple versus Penn State, right? So people might, you know, um, react differently to that sort of outgroup membership, right? Um, so it's like, it's really being reserved with information constantly and um, always thinking, well, there might be more to the story or this might be very context dependent. Um, and, uh, maybe a, one finding in a paper is not the full story, right? That makes sense. Um, one of the things that you said to me earlier when we were connecting, you said one of your pet peeves is when people, well, you may not have said pet peeves, but you would say, you said you didn't like when people used the term hardwired. Mm -hmm. You know, so-and-so is hardwired for X, Y, Z. Why, why is that? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sometimes I think when um, people say hardwired, I think that it makes it seem that you are just this rigid organ that is just this, that you do what you do. Your brain is just what your brain is. You're and incapable of change. Exactly. And um, where, sure, there are, definitely parts of the brain that are literally connected to one another. Um, we, uh, we also know that uh, your brain changes. I mean, that's a very regular function. Every day that you create new memories, your brain's changing, right? Um, I think that, that it, it gets this uh, sense that, well, this is just the way that it is, right? Um, this group is hardwired to be this way. This other group is hardwired to be this way. Um, I think that that really summarizes why it can be, I think, I just think it's, um, it, it doesn't inform well. I love that. Your brain changes is, you know, a key message that I think we wanted to kind of tap into today. Um, to me, that really resonates and that your thoughts are not, you can change. Yeah, your brain changes and think like a scientist, question yourself, um, to me, those are some really valuable insights that I think um, cultivate, you know, introspective thought. Mm -hmm. So is there, are there other topics or other areas that you would like to share or discuss? Um, anything that, you know, you work on or think about that you think would be, you know, timely for our audience or you know, just 
to examine? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of um, issues with uh, in, in any given situation that we can clearly discuss. Um, I think that maybe something that's useful from the perspective of, you know, a quote unquote scientist is that to not be discouraged when you are overwhelmed with information. Um, when you're, say, if you're trying to read something scientific and it's, you know, filled with jargon, filled with lots of complicated information, just remember that that's not on you. You're not, quote unquote, stupid um, or you're, quote unquote, not smart enough to read it. It's really the failure of the person who wrote that article because our job as scientists is really we're trained to communicate information about the world. And if we're not doing a good job communicating, that's on us. Um, it's not, science is not an endeavor to sort of artificially elevate yourself as some sort of elite. We're supposed to be here to inform. We're supposed to be here to help make information easier for everybody else. So if there, there is one thing uh, that I would want people, that I would want to encourage is that you can think like a scientist it is hard to think about things that maybe make you uncomfortable, that maybe does not resonate with the worldview that you have grown up with your whole life. But it's really okay to uh, experience that. And it's, it's not impossible. Your brain is excellent at figuring out problems um, and sorting out patterns in the world. Um, so if you feel like you want to do more, but you you don't know if you're capable. I just would want to reassure anyone that you absolutely can. You are absolutely capable. Um, and if there is some scientific media out there that is um, a little bit hard to understand, um, I would let them know. Let them know that, hey, I don't really understand that. And that's that's really on us to fix that. Um, the, we're here to make information available to you. I think that is the perfect way to wrap up. I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you is, um, you know, talking about these things and learning. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. Thank it was my so pleasure. Much. You are, you, I am, like I said, I am such a huge fan. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just, I feel very lucky to know you and to be able to um, learn from you. Well, the feelings very mutual. Um, I just I feel uh, very privileged to have been a part of this conversation with you guys. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Appreciate you coming on. Mm -hmm.